Lord, we just thank you for everything you're doing in and through this house. I thank you for every single person that calls this place home, the ones that are going to call this place home. I thank you for the local churches in the area lifting up your name, God. We are not a house against others. We are a house with them, God. And we just thank you for that, that we have a community of believers in Chatham and Effingham County and beyond. Lord, tonight, we don't want to hear my words, my thoughts, or my opinions. We just want to hear your truth. So use me, say what you want to say. It's in your name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Thank you, Floyd. A high price demands radical love. I'm about to read a scripture that I don't have up there, so don't try to follow me because I pulled it up when I was praying. But I really feel like, I don't know if you have felt it or if you're going through it, but there's a lot of warfare going on. People go through warfare all the time. Um, warfare can simply be described as, um, if, if you will, a fight that you cannot see. You're struggling with things, and sometimes you don't know why you're struggling with them. Anybody go through something like that? Well, I believe tonight, um, there, actually someone gave me a dream, and uh, some of you are, think, are getting nervous because I'm about to read it because some of y'all give me a lot of dreams. But someone had a dream, and I'm going to read what it says, because when I saw the dream, um, it kind of confirmed what I felt like I was going to preach about. It said, I had a dream about you this morning. In the dream, you were dressed in solid black special forces fatigues with black military boots. Obviously, this is a dream. <laughs> You're about to become an expert in warfare strategies and getting the revelation of strategies and how to execute those strategies. And I believe tonight the message is about warfare strategies because I think, especially the charismatic church, we've gotten warfare wrong. We, uh, we try to go after the, the witches and the demons and we try to go after the curses, but the fact of the matter is curses are broken and demons have no power, so why are we trying to fight them? The warfare, I believe, exists in your mind. It's getting to understand what you're dealing with who you're dealing with, and maybe a better way to say it is for you to understand what they're dealing with when they deal with you. Because there is a worth that is you that is unlike anything. And I wanted to find that worth tonight. I believe the message tonight is very simple of you understanding who you are and what you're worth and how to go to war. And I believe the best strategy to go to war is radical love. I'm going to start by pushing some theological ideas, because I never do that. You know, I, I remember in the Old Testament, Moses talking about how when something happens to you, you got to kind of get even. You know, if someone punches you, you got to punch them back. Justice. What's funny is that when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, well, you've heard eye for an eye. Another way might to say is, you've heard Moses and the law tell you eye for an eye. But I tell you to turn the cheek. Later on, Jesus says, no one has seen the Father except me. So Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he's trying to redefine the question of the Old Testament, who is God the Father? He says, God the Father is not necessarily telling us to get revenge and get even, He's saying there's a whole new way to look at things. I heard a preacher say recently, the Old Testament is the question and the New Testament is the answer. When you look at warfare, you don't look to Job to say that's why it is. 
You look at Job to say that's the question and Jesus is the answer. Jesus says, everything that I do, I've come to you to reveal who the Father is. So if you ever have a question about who the Father is, don't go to the Old Testament first. Look at the character of Jesus and then see how Jesus was evident in Old Testament. Does that make sense? So first I want to kind of look at this radical love. Now this scripture is not on the screen, but I want to read it to you. It's in Luke chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 27 through 36. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Y'all hear that? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. The church loves to do good to the needy and the broken. But when we start saying do good to those who hate you, we try to justify why we should not. Like if I told you to go bless President Biden right now, half of you would call me crazy. And if you love President Biden, I'm not coming against you, I'm just speaking on behalf of most of the people in here. There, there is this idea in the church that if we don't agree, they're not worthy of any love. But Jesus says, if you consider them your enemy, love them. Hmm. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. Not pray against those who hurt you. All of us have gone through points in our lives where people have betrayed us and hurt us and stabbed us in the back. You know what the best warfare is for it? Pray for them. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other. See, he's in, he's in direct opposite of what Moses taught. Interesting. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks, and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. That's interesting. The, the first thing when something, when something is taken from us, we put it on Facebook trying to get it back. And the scripture says, don't even do that. It's crazy, right? That's radical. That's dumb. That's God. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. If you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. You, you see the pattern over and over. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who, who, are, who are unthankful and wicked. Did you hear that? He is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. And we think that the only thing the Father wants to do to the unthankful and wicked is to plague them and curse them. Can I, can I push there a minute? Think about when God sent the plagues to Egypt. That was not his first choice. You know what his first choice was? Moses. Go convince your brother to let him go. In other words, I want Pharaoh to have a chance to be glorified for doing the good thing. <laughs> you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. 
I believe the best warfare for this generation, for this season, for this time, is to understand that radical love is actually the biggest tool we have. Because radical love is actually simply a display of the character of Jesus Christ, which displays the character of God the Father. We've got to get out of this idea of we've got to take people out, get people gone. God says, let me take care of all that. The thing that you need to be known for, church, is what you love, not so much as what you are against. And if I can be honest, when I look at our social media, most of us in here, I know more what you're against than what you're for. And that's hard to, to hear. Oh, he, he, he's, he's preaching to us. Yes, because this is the family. This, this is the sheep that I have been given. And I got a pretty big shovel to take care of you sheep, if you know what I mean. <laughs> if you don't know, then you're... Be blessed. We have got to understand the power of radical love. And I think to understand why we need such a radical love, I actually believe we need to understand what it truly means to be lost. Because the church is given the Great Commission, and part of that is to go find the lost. But I think we have a wrong picture of what lost is. In Luke 15, there are three different parables of describing the lost. There's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Many of you know lost son is what? The prodigal son. I'm not going to read all of these parables, but I do want to connect a common thread through them. The word lost in the Greek means this, to cut off entirely or permanent destruction, the cause to a miserable end. To be lost is, means you are cut off entirely from something, being caused to a miserable end. To be lost is to be entirely cut off from something. But to be cut off from something means at one time you had to belong to it. And in order to be lost, you have to first understand that you belong. We have defined lost as those who do not belong to God. I say we need to shift our thinking to understand that they do belong to God, but they're lost because of disagreement and not abandonment. They're lost not because God abandoned them, but they're lost because they are out of agreement with where they belong. So when you start to understand, when you see the lost or the wicked or, or the, the, the ones that represent the enemy, it's no longer God's abandoned them because they're bad. It's they have no idea what they have access to. And because they have no idea what they have access to, and because they have no idea what they truly belong to, I'm going to treat them as someone who belongs to show them where the agreement should lie. Uh, and I'm going to show you this more in the scripture. This isn't just a lofty concept. This is in the scripture. Some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy, but look at this. The first parable says a man lost his one sheep, and it says he would, some of you know this, lead the 99 to go after one. Well, look at what it says in verses 5 and 6. 
When he was found, this is the sheep, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. Now I want you to pay attention to this. Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. The woman with the coins, she lost one coin out of ten. And this is what it says in verse 9. When she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. The father loses one of the two of the sons to pride, rebellion, and greed. And in Luke 15, 22, when the son comes home, it says, His father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. This son of mine was dead. Remember, lost means to be entirely cut off. The son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Notice that even though the sheep was lost, the coin was lost, and the son was lost, when they found the sheep, when they found the coin, when they found the son, the language was, I have found my. Not, will you be mine again? They were declaring, even though these things were lost, they always belonged. My coin, my sheep, my son is back in line with proper position. Why is this important to understand? The church needs to shift to understand that our mission is not inviting the lost into family, rather opening their eyes to realign with the family they were already a part of. I'm not sure if this is pushing too much on your beliefs. I'm not saying that those who don't believe in Jesus go to heaven. I want to clarify that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is they don't realize who they belong to. God did not abandon them. They simply are out of agreement where they belong to, which is why the number one issue today in this world is people trying to identify with a group finding belonging. And the issue is people are trying to find belonging in simply ones that agree with them instead of shifting their agreement with the one that truly knows them the best. Is this making sense? Okay. Which helps us when we start to understand that being lost is simply out of agreement with belonging, it helps us to understand why we are to regard enemies in such a way to love them. Because no, we no longer see an enemy as your horrible person. We see an enemy as you belong to the same family as me. And I'm going to do whatever it takes for you to open your eyes to where you truly belong to. So just in case you're against me, I'm going to read the scripture again. Love those who come against you. Love your enemies. Do good to them. This is not an option. This is not, well, I don't feel like it. If you claim to be a son or a daughter of God, you take the command. You don't weigh it out. Okay? I believe this is the strategic warfare. 
well, that, that's not really strategic. It's easy. Love your enemies. Okay. <laughs> you say that's not easy, but it, it, it's, or you say that it's easy, but it's one of the most difficult things to do. Which is why the enemy has Christians still believing in get justice. Justice was served when Jesus died on that cross and paid the debt of sin. Justice is already done. If you believe that, you're no longer trying to get even. You're trying to wake them up. You start to regard them differently. The scripture says we are like treasure in earthen vessels. The question is why are we trying to point out their issues when we should be trying to find a treasure? Well, you don't know what they did to me. And they don't know who they belong to. And because they don't know who they belong to, they committed actions that don't agree or line up with the identity of their father. They line up with the identity of a false father. So why is it easy to forgive someone that has harmed you? Because you're forgiving them because you realize they are totally out of alignment. Not justifying what they did, but trying to wake them up to the character that is you displayed that is Jesus Christ. When he forgave you, you can do the same to your worst enemy because you no longer regard them by their flesh, you regard them by their spirit. Okay. Romans 12, 20 through 21. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you. Conquer evil by doing good. What does the scripture say is the most strategic way to conquer evil? Do good. You don't overcome evil with only binding and loosing prayers. That's the lie of the charismatic church. We have adopted this culture of speak against it and just rebuke it. I only recall Jesus rebuking his disciples once. And he didn't rebuke Peter. He rebuked Satan. Because he identified the one who was speaking in place of Peter. But we have adopted a culture in the charismatic church of, oh, get behind me, Satan, and you're regarding it wrong. It's you need to regard Satan, not call the person the devil. Am I calling stuff out? Okay, good, good. If I offend you, get convicted. You don't overcome evil with only binding and loosing prayers or going on a witch, a witch hunt to find the occult. It said, You know what it says? It says, they're hungry. Feed them. They're thirsty. Quench their thirst. Bless them. You know why people dive into the occult? You know why people go into atheism and agnosticism and go into all these places? They don't know where they belong. And they're hungry, so they're finding food. And the moment they find something that tastes good in the moment, they grab onto it. And the scripture says, they're hungry. And what we do is we separate. We don't, we don't want them in here because we don't want them speaking death and destruction against the church. We're the church. There is no power on earth or below that can conquer us. So you know what I say? Come on, witches. Because I want them to understand that what has fed them is nothing compared to the bread and the wine of Jesus Christ. Could it be that once we get radical love right, when someone walks in to this house that is totally surrendered to the enemy, 
When they walk in, radical love causes everything to fall off. Radical love. Romans 8, 1 through 2. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I'm going to read that again. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. It doesn't say less condemnation. It doesn't say not most condemnation. It says there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. Your standing with God is not improved. Your standing with God has been completely transformed. You don't earn good standing. He has given you right standing. And when you move into the reality of I am 100% transformed, even though parts of you are not lining up with that, then any thoughts that try to come against that should always be 100% rejected. Because it's there is no more condemnation for you. Like when you think or say to yourself, I cannot do that thing or I'm not there yet. Yes, you are. Stop trying to put imaginary chains on yourself. Pastor Kyle, I'm not ready for that. Yes, you are. There is no condemnation for you. You belong to the family of God. He has given you the Holy Spirit and has given you gifts to accomplish every perfect and good work under heaven. He says, you are totally worthy. You are totally ready. And you say, yeah, but you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I'm going through. I don't need to. There is no condemnation for what you're doing. There is no condemnation for what you did. He simply says, get on a journey because it's the only way to walk out of your habits. What religion has done is, done is says, you need to get clean to be worthy to serve in the church. What Jesus says is, start serving so we can clean off false scales, false ideas, false identities, false, false, false. Stop holding back by chains that Jesus broke. And you know why it's difficult to understand that? Because we have not understood radical love. Radical love is he says, I've taken every price. I have paid the price for you, and I've taken care of the debt. So let's go. As the, as the story in the prodigal son ends, it says when he, they put a ring and a robe on him, and, he, and they said, let the party begin. And we still have a mindset in the church of I can't get, wait to get to heaven. Why? The party started the moment I said yes to Jesus. The moment I said yes to Jesus, he met me and put on a ring and a robe on me. And he said, let's go. Heaven, it, heaven is not when the party starts. Heaven is just another dimension of party. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on the earth as it already is in heaven. Our job is not to wait for heaven, rather to spread the kingdom of heaven. To understand that the kingdom of heaven is a culture that this earth is hungry for and yearning for. The people are yearning for. You say, I can't bless my enemy. I can't pray for that person. I cannot get over this hurt. I can't get past that thing that happened to me. You want to know how to get... It's, so many of us have things in our past that haunt us and cripple us and hold us back, and we're asking the same thing as when am I going to get past it? The waiting game is on you, not the Father. Because you need to learn how to radically love yourself again. You need to learn how to so radically love 
his church again. That you no longer regard the people that did you wrong as evil. You regard them as simply out of agreement with what's good. So you know what you start doing to the people that did you wrong? Lord, bless them with radical love. Remember the declaration of the night, blessings from unexpected places? I dare you, when you go home tonight, to pray unexpected blessings over the one who betrayed you the most. And see what kind of return on that investment you get. This is strategic warfare. It doesn't seem like it. Because we think strategic warfare is saying the right thing or praying the right prayer. Strategic warfare is, I have got weight on me. You know what God says? Bless the ones who hurt you. Love your enemies. But what we do is we get bitter. We hold grudges. And Scripture says bitterness is like in a witchcraft. What that simply means is this. Bitterness will start affecting areas of your life that had nothing to do with why you're bitter. And it will start making you react differently as like witchcraft will cause things to shift from a distance. It's, bitterness will cause you to put up a wall to people that didn't do anything to you. And then you start questioning their integrity when there's no integrity to be questioned. And you're robbing yourself of key relationships because you haven't learned how to simply love the one who did it to you. Jesus, on the cross, forgive them, Father. They know what, not what they do. He prayed for his enemies because he didn't regard us as enemies. He regarded us as they don't know. They're out of agreement. They don't understand. They belong to me. Hmm. Let me say this, too. There is no condemnation. You're not only free from the power of sin, but you're free from the guilt of sin. Guilt can be more powerful than any, any suggestion from Satan or demons. Guilt can convince you of horrible things. Talk to Judas. He was so guilty that he turned in Jesus, his only answer for himself was suicide. Guilt can do incredible things to people. But you know what the scripture says? There is no condemnation for you. Meaning, you are free from the guilt of the thing that you did. You see, guilt and conviction are very different. Conviction causes you to shift in the right direction. Guilt causes you to stand still. Conviction causes you to shift in the right direction. You know what that is? Repentance. The church has taught repentance wrong. I talk about it all the time. I'm going to talk about it again. Repentance is not, God, forgive me for this thing I did over and over and over. That's not repentance. Repentance is not, I'm sorry, 100 times for the same thing over and over. Repentance is change the way you think. That's repentance. He says, repent. And when you repent, he's, he's saying, you need to change the way you think about everything. You need to change the way you regard me. You need to change the way you regard your neighbors, your enemies. And when you change the way you think, it will cause a shift in a different direction, in the direction toward kingdom, in direction toward God, and away from the direction that you've been taken into, which causes sin. Repentance is not, I'm sorry for sin. Repentance is, I understand I'm sinning. I no longer want to walk there, so I'm going to start at the core issue. Why do I think it's okay? Because if you don't change the way you think about it, you're never going to have a change in your actions. 
That's called behavior management. Look at verse 3 in Romans 8. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature but instead follow the Spirit. The law could not get us back into proper alignment. The thing that gets us in proper alignment is agreement in Jesus that gets us aligned appropriately with the Father. Do you notice it started out those who belong to Christ Jesus? We all, even sinners who are not saved, belong to the Father. Only those who belong to Christ Jesus are saved. Why? Because it's through Jesus you get back in alignment with Father. And when you get, when you get into alignment through Jesus, the one who paid for our sins with the Father, then he, you are so sanctified and you are so good that he says, now you're worthy to house Holy Spirit. So the moment you say you're weak, I say you're strong because I will give you a gift to accomplish a task that I've asked you to do. We belong to God, but alignment with Jesus is agreement with that belonging. And as a result, just like the prodigal with a ring and a robe, we're worthy to be the temple, and we become the very end place where the Holy Spirit can dwell within us. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the ring and the robe. It's, it, it's a mark of belonging. The prodigal wore a ring and a robe as a sign to all that he belonged, that he was loved. And we have a mark of love like no other called Holy Spirit who helps us and gives us gifts. Problem is we treat Holy Spirit as conscience. Is he a part of that? Absolutely. But that he, that's not all he is. And the problem is that a lot of times church people only use spiritual gifts for church people. Don't you think it's a problem when we see more gifts at prayer or Saturday nights than in the grocery store? If I never see you operating your gift outside of a church meeting, get out of my face. I mean, I love y'all, but... And this is on me too. We've got to start being sensitive that the gifts are not just for church meetings. They're for much more than that. I mean, think about it. When Jesus ministered to the Samaritan woman at the well, dude read her mail. She was back talking just like a woman does. <laughs> Whoa, y'all, chill out, chill out. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'll pay my sin tax later. She was talking back and telling him why she was okay and all this. And I don't need you, don't need you. And, he, and then he, he called her out. You, you, you've been shacking with five men. You, you're with one now. But look what she says at the end of the entire conversation in John chapter 4, verse 29. Come and see a man. That means put up the scripture. Stop talking up there. Thank you. Ooh. 
That's a woman up there in the sound booth. All right. <laughs> Verse 29. I'm just kidding. Y'all chill out. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Do you see what just happened there? Jesus operated in a spiritual gift of knowledge, reading her mail, having no ability to know it, and when he called around everything, she said, this dude knows everything. I think he's the Messiah. And we know the rest of the story. She went and preached to the town. The town received Jesus. But our evangelism tool has become, here's a track, let me tell you about Jesus. What if the best evangelism tool is actually the, whole, the gifts of the Spirit? What if they heard you reveal mysteries only known to them, which would make them want to know how, and you show them who? What if people came to church because our evangelism was in the hospital healing the sick? See, what church growth has become is market right, get the good name out, let people know we have a lot of good country club activities. Is, is that okay that I go there? Let people know there's a place to belong, welcome home, and we do all that. It's, it's all good, but it's incomplete. We want people to know that this is the family they belong to. But we also want them to know what is the mark of the family. What if our evangelism was healing minds? And I'll go back to an example I used earlier. What if, like, the evangelism to this nation was instead of praying against our president to pray that his mind be healed, and then in that healing of his mind, he started to be open to the truth of Jesus, and the next thing we know, he's changing policies because he's changed his character. But we don't want to pray for him because we, we call him, you know, dumb and stupid and against our beliefs. If you consider him enemy, the, 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 then you need to read the scripture. Love him. Bless him. Pray for him. Stop cursing him. You're doing the nation more harm than good. We have got to understand the warfare strategy of the kingdom. Love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. The only thing Christians do is pray for Trump to get back. Let me tell you, the answer to this nation is not Trump. The answer to this nation is a people rising up with the mark of God that no one has ever seen before. And when they say, who is the God that you worship, we can say, it's the God that you have not seen until now. Because all they've seen is the God that is religious and it's nothing like his character. First Corinthians six twenty says, "It's describe, describing. It's not up there. Describing Jesus dying on the cross, and it says he paid the what? The highest, what, price." Here's what I want you to realize tonight. Why is the price high? Because we've been taught that you know death is the highest price, right? The sacrificial lamb, right? That the father giving his son is the highest price. Any parent would say amen to that. And those are all true things. 
He paid the highest price. He paid the price of death on, on the cross. He, he, he paid the, the, the price of serving time, if you will, and going down to the gates of Hades and taking keys back of the kingdom and bringing them back up. Amen? But what we have missed is he paid a high price for something. You don't pay $10 for a BMW. You pay what? A high price. If something has a high price to be paid, that means that something you're paying the high price for is of tremendous value. Matthew 13, 44. I'm going to get to that. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. Just leave this up here if you would, Jenna. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. So we've been taught, and rightfully so, that the man represents Jesus and the treasure represents us, right? That, that's right. It's all good. And Jesus purchased the field to get us, to, to get us, right? Here's the problem. Let me, let me just make sure I'm saying this right. Jesus goes in the field, goes in the world, finds treasure, and says, oh, I want that. But he didn't just snatch us out of it. He didn't, he didn't rapture us. He put us right back in. Now, here's the problem. Psalm 24.1 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything's in it. What, the earth is the Lord's and what? Everything. So who did the field belong to? All right. If the, the field belonged to the Lord, are we in agreement? Okay. The rabbinical law of this time meaning the law of the rabbis, stated this. Y'all ready? If a workman came on a treasure in a field and took it out, that's what Jesus did, right? It would belong to his master, the field's owner. So by law, he did not have to put the treasure back in the field to get it. We've been taught that he had to put us back in the field so that he could buy the field to get the treasure. According to rabbinical law, if he pulled the treasure out, it would have belonged to his master, the field's master, the field's owner. The earth is the Lord's and everything's in it. So technically, Jesus could have just raptured us up a long time ago and been done with it. Let me open your eyes. You've already been left behind. <laughs> Done. Stop watching the VHSs. <laughs> Jesus is... <laughs> Jesus... Now, I'm not saying there won't be another rapture, but I'm not, I'm not saying there will be either, but Jesus... No, is speaking in a parable using examples to teach a kingdom principle. According to the law at the time, 
If Jesus found treasure, by law, the treasure would have belonged to the owner of the field. So why buy the field? In the parable, I think one of the most necessary points to understand, the man was in the field looking for its worth. And when he was looking for the worth of the field, he found treasure. And he didn't take the treasure. He put the treasure back in the field because he wanted to give the field back its worth. So he didn't just buy the field for the treasure. He bought the field for the treasure and the field. The kingdom of heaven will spread in the field when the treasure brings worth to it. It's called restoration. <laughs> we cannot restore the earth operating out of alignment. So that's why Jesus comes to say, agree with me to get back into the alignment with who you belong to. You see, we, we think that the scripture is only about saving us. But if you look at the scripture in John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The, the word world actually means cosmos. It means everything. It doesn't just mean your world. It's not figurative. He says, I love everything so much that I saved the thing, the man, the flesh, you, who I put in charge of the cosmos, who I put in charge of the world. So why do you think when Jesus came in our form, he showed us principles like speaking against storms? Because he's saying, I came to get you back into alignment for you to put the field back into alignment. That's why the scripture says the earth is groaning for the sons of man to be revealed. The field wants its worth. And the field getting worth won't be up to God. It'll be up to you. Because God is represented in and through you by the power of Holy Spirit and the power of your agreement to the one you belong to. Is this... Jesus rebuking the storm. I talk about it all the time, but let me bring something a little more to it tonight. Mark 4, 39 through 40. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. And suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. And then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Lack of faith is evidence of out of alignment. And what I want to point out, he did not tell the storm to go away. Hey, can you put that scripture back up there real quick, Jenna? Thank you. He did not tell the storm to go away. He spoke to the wind and the waves, be still, get in order. The storm was the fruit of out of order wind and waves. So the next time you're dealing with a storm in your life or a problem, stop negotiating with the outcome of the problem and bring your faith of authority in Christ to the issues that are out of alignment. Let me say that again. Jesus did not rebuke the storm. He spoke, peace be still to the wind and the waves. He spoke to the issues that caused a fruit called storm. So when you're dealing with a storm in your life, you got all this stuff going on. You don't, you don't, speak, you don't say things like, I speak 
peace over my marriage. You speak to the waves and the wind. Like, let me get in line with how I regard my wife, which causes the storm of my marriage to... See, we, God, heal this, heal that. You know what his answer is? Speak peace and stillness to all the factors that contributed to that storm. Lord, get me out of debt. Start looking at your spending. Lord, bless me with a miracle. Look at how you steward everything. I, I, I was listening to a song this week. I thought this was really good. It, they, and this, I think this, this, this is a great faith line. They said, um, when I see sickness and I see disease, I simply for, see a miracle work looking for a home. That's why you got to get specific. It's not just God heal me. Speak. I don't want to say the word cancer. Can, can, can I be honest with you? I, I get so tired of that stuff. Well, don't, don't speak it into existence. It's already in existence. I'm speaking to the thing and saying, you are not allowed. I'm calling you out because your name has no more authority than my voice. we got to stop being scared of things that don't have any weight of authority. I speak to cancer. Get out. Not just disease. Heal their body. Speak to the thing. Talk to the waves. Talk to the winds. We, we, we got to realize who we are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that's more victorious than Him. So we got to stop dancing around these issues. I, 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 I have a... People say, well, I have an issue with... You know, c connecting with, with, with spiritual fathers because my father wronged me. Speak to the issue. Start praying for the one that wronged you. And you might see that you'll finally get free. Well, I have an issue trusting men. I have an issue trusting women because of this thing that happened to me. Start praying blessings over the ones that don't deserve it and watch the scales come off of your eyes because you're still regarding them based off of how you regard your past. So start regarding your past with the spiritual warfare of love them, pray for them, bless them. Amen. That's the warfare we need. Radical love. You know what radical love is? Honor your mother and father even if they don't deserve the honor. This, this is heavy, but... Ow. In John 11, Jesus is promising that Lazarus was, would raise from the dead. And he walks up and he finds Mary crying. And she, she says, Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died. Don't put that up yet. What are you doing? <laughs> and Jesus got angry. Jesus got angry. Y'all hear that? He never sinned. Stop beating yourself up over when you get angry. It's not getting angry is the issue. It's using anger in the wrong way. Okay. Her faith shifted because she blamed Jesus' absence on her brother's death instead of leaning on a promise. And it picks up in verse 37. Now you can throw it up there. It says, but some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. 
Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. It's going to smell terrible. Now, I want you to pause right there. Jesus just said, roll the stone aside. He's going to come out. And they were more consumed with the smell of a cadaver than the miracle looking for a home. Isn't that what we do? What? What are y'all laughing at? Think about it. We, 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 oh, this is, yeah. So years ago, I had a cousin that passed away. Ryan was with me when, when, we, when this happened. And um, he had been passed away for days. And I, I knew it was out of timing. Let me just speak to that for a second. The Lord says there's a time to live and a time to die. But that doesn't mean everyone dies in their appointed time. It's not God that caused a wreck to kill your family member. That was a bad decision taking them out of time. You hear me? Well, this family member passed away out of time. He had been dead for days. And I looked like an idiot. But I walked into that funeral home, and I put my hand on my cold cousin, and I must have, Ryan was with me. We were praying for probably 30 minutes. Now, obviously, we, we never see anything happen. But you know what? I'll do it again and again and again. Because I'm willing to look radically stupid for a chance for Jesus to be revealed in something that's called impossible. I think that's the going from glory to glory, from faith to faith. Not, I'm never going to pray for this again because it didn't come out my way. No, I'm going to keep doing it because my belief is not going to shift because I don't see the results. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? He goes on to fulfill the promise. Her response, nah, he's thinking. She's more consumed in conditions than the promise. See, the thing that we have to understand, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when a condition comes that seems too hard to get through, remember, the same radical love that went to the cross is the same radical love operating today in and through you. So why are you worried? Why are you worried about the stinky, stank conditions? When Jesus says, hey, treasure, I put you in that field. Bring worth to it. I'm tired of my job. Treasure, bring worth to it. I'm sick of my family. Treasure, bring worth to it. This country's going out. Treasure, bring worth to it. God says, God didn't just say, hey, I want the treasure. He says, I'm redeeming the treasure so the treasure can redeem the field. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. All of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. 
We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. You see, God initiated a ministry of reconciliation. We are to take up this reconciling, bringing all things to Father God, and do it with a character of radical love that we see in Jesus. Now, I started this whole message defining the lost. Not the same, it isn't that some belong and some don't. Lost, remember, is simply out of agreement with what you belong to, which denies you access. This is what it says in Romans 8, 5. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. What is the sinful nature? It is a nature that embraces a false idea of not belonging. See, we think sinful nature just means you do everything wrong. No, no, no. Sinful nature embraces the false idea of not belonging. The moment you sin, it's actually evidence of where your mind is aligned. When your mind is properly aligned with belonging to God, it won't be a question of whether or not you want to do that thing. So when you sin, it's not so much slap yourself because now you're condemned. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sinning is actually evidence that there's a part of your mind out of agreement. That's why he says, repent. Change the way you think because in that area of your mind, you're out of alignment with who you belong to. And it shows by what you do. Is this making sense? Not that you can't control yourself. Rather that you have not repented or changed the way you think. Or maybe even you haven't changed the way you thought of yourself. Because a lot of the problems really come down to this. We don't have a high regard for ourselves. So we compromise because we settle with an identity that is less than good and perfect and righteous and pleasing. So the, 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 the entire scripture is trying to point us to this idea that there is a radical love that should be displayed through us because we've received it first. See, the wonderful thing about God is we've always belonged. So it's not a matter of, man, I hope we can, I hope we can get them to belong to God. No, no, no open their eyes that they already do. And when they agree with it, salvation. And when we get that thinking right, we start to regard our enemies different. We start to regard our problems different. Because we're not regarding them as, as, I need to get this thing out of my life. We regard it as, how, where is the treasure? If we would start looking at issues of let me get it away versus let me find the treasure, it becomes a lot easier to love the ones that stab you in the back. <clears throat> I can't tell you how many times as a, as a pastor or as a leader I have felt stabbed in the back. But you know what I've learned? The power of getting the knife out? Love them. And you know what I'm learning slowly but surely and a lot more rapidly now? When I love the people that I feel like, whether it's a stab in the back or 
maybe a betrayal or don't worry, none of y'all, y'all good. When I start loving those people, they either lead themselves or they totally repent, change the way they think, and become the strongest people you'd ever meet. We gotta love our enemies, we gotta bless them. We gotta start going to war the right way. In verse six, this is what I'm closing with. Letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. Letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. <clears throat> I was talking to uh, Randy once, and he was talking about kind of his revelation of spirit, soul, body. We talk about all the time we have three parts to spirit, soul, and body. And he, he said it so, so good. He said, you know what I realized? <clears throat> you know, spirit is you're either dead or alive. Holy Spirit or not. Your soul is your mind, your will, and emotions, your, your heart. Your flesh is obviously the thing that contains it all. And Randy said, I finally get it. I said, what'd you get? He said, if I get my soul, my mind and will and emotions in agreement with the spirit, it outweighs the boat of the flesh. And I was like, yes. That's, that's what repentance is. Your mind, your soul is aligned with sinful nature or Holy Spirit. And when you get that aligned, your flesh has to obey. So if you find your flesh given to this thing over and over, it's not, I need to stop. It's, why is my mind always seeking that agreement? And I say to you, <clears throat> the best way to get your mind in agreement is to understand your worth. The Father sent His Son to die on the cross and pay death, hell, and the grave for you. Not as just a great expression, but because you are worth that much to the Father. If I may go further. We've made the cross all about Jesus, 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 Jesus. And it is. Jesus is everything. He's amazing. He's the Savior of the world. But we forget the reason we have Jesus because the Father looked at the field and said, there's my treasure right there. And I'm paying whatever I got for it. And you know what he did? He said, word, son, buy him back. Radical love says, just agree with me. I see who you are. That's Jesus. He says, I see who you truly are. You were with me before the earth was formed. That's why he looked at Simon calling Peter. That's why he looked at Saul and gave him a new name, Paul. The biggest question tonight with radical love in order to display radical love is do you understand how good you are in the eyes of God? Get in agreement with it. Because that high price he pays demands a radical love. Everyone may not be worthy of your relationship, but everyone's worthy of your prayer. You are the why behind a high price. Let us respond to that high price with radical love so that others can see the glory of God. Amen. Let's stand.